Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 103 with Chris McGough. Chris goes deep and talks about these universal patterns that show up in human behavior and we talk integrity, and it really gets you thinking about what makes groups function well and not so well. So you're going to learn, one, approaches to building powerful alliances, two, what the word integrity truly means and how to solidify it in your team, and three, fatal patterns to watch out for in the workplace that can lead to failure. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we talk about here, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep103. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I'd encourage you to take a look around. We've got the 10 Days to Winning at Work free email course, gold nugget email summaries from each of the guests so you can get the gist of their takeaway recommendations faster and a whole lot more from my training programs to little treats here and there. So check that out, awesomeatyourjob.com, while investigating the links and show notes at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep103, which has the skinny on Chris. Here's some more info about Chris. Chris McGough is the founder of The Clearing Inc., where he guides organizations to tackle their most complex and high-stakes problems. Using his book, The Primes, How Any Group Can Solve Any Problem, McGough gives leaders clarity to see the resources they already have available. He's a business leader and consultant with over 30 years of experience helping leaders achieve their desired outcomes during the most uncertain times. From mergers and acquisitions to change in leadership, McGough is passionate about serving the needs of enterprises across the globe. Here's Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be here, Pete. Well, now I was really enjoying reading some of your stuff all over the place and you use the phrase universal pattern a lot. So I think it might be great if we just get that defined, first of all, so that we'll know clearly what we're talking about as we chat through the rest of this. Great. Well, let's start with the word pattern. Sure. You know, a pattern, once you understand a pattern, you can predict what's coming next. That's pretty much the benefit of a pattern. Universal means anywhere in the world, any time in the world. So these are patterns that appear anywhere in the world, any time in the world, with respect to group behavior. Okay. Intriguing. Intriguing. So now in your book, The Primes, How Any Group Can Solve Any Problem, you talk about a few different sets or categories of universal patterns, which I'd love to dig into kind of each of them in turn, but maybe just to chum the waters or get some excitement going. Could you maybe give us an example of one universal pattern and bring it to life by telling a story of how maybe working with your extensive client list, that's very impressive, or somewhere they kind of internalized and articulated, became aware of a universal pattern and it just changed everything? Well, I think the easiest one, and I think the one that we surfaced the earliest was Big Hat, Little Hat. All right. Big Hat, Little Hat is just this conflict, this dilemma that happens when you're part of a unit, say you're in a department in a company. So you have a department that you identify with, but you also, and that's your small hat, but you also identify with the company itself. When I worked at IBM, I was in department 412. I worked at IBM. 
So my big hat was the corporation. My small hat was the department I work in. Big hat, little hat shows up in, oh, the state of Pennsylvania versus the United States. It's a very old, old, old intractable dilemma called good for the part, good for the whole. And the question comes to when it collides, when something good for the part is not necessarily good for the whole, or something that we're going to do is very good for the whole, but not necessarily good for the part. So when you're in a meeting and you're in a big hat meeting, you're going to plan a strategy for the company or some kind of vision, or you're going to take some bold action at the corporate level, some of the time you're thinking, wouldn't that be great for the company? But then it's very natural for some of the time to be thinking, what does this mean to me? Or what does this mean to my department? Absolutely. It's a difficulty to manage, not a problem to solve. Big hat, little hat is a constant dilemma. And it was written about thousands of years ago. It will be written about a thousand years in the future. And that dilemma manifests itself everywhere on earth. Big hat, little hat. Okay, so having laid out, that's a principle. Sure, I, I could see that that does apply just about everywhere in all kinds of you know places and times and people. So are there any sorts of, I guess, prescriptions or pro tips or kind of ways you've seen that universal principle get considered well, such that there was an excellent outcome from it? Well, I'll give you two examples. The, the first thing to do is to discern it, to let everybody know if you're in one of these kind of bigger hat things like budgeting, company budgeting is usually a big hat thing. Let everybody know that they're going to be switching back and forth from the company perspective to the individual perspective or department perspective, that it's natural and it's going to happen. You know, everybody says, oh, let's keep the big hat on. Let's keep the big hat on. That's not actually the way it works. You're going to wear those two hats and they're going to flip very quickly in your mind. So I think one of the best things to do is to name it and say, look, because of the nature of this meeting, because we're building a corporate budget, this is going to be a big hat meeting, but you're going to shift into that little hat and ask yourself, what does this mean to me and my department? It's okay. Here's the red card, though. If you start advocating from a small hat perspective and, you know, what you're advocating clearly is not in service of the big hat. We're going to have to give you a yellow card or a red card on that. So once it's distinguished, you'll hear the group while they're talking, you'll hear the group go, yeah, we got that, but that's really a little hat perspective. And they start to self-police. So the cool part about the big hat, little hat is once it's distinguished in the meeting, the group will self-police itself. Okay, very good. So you're saying that a big piece of it is just that, you know, you have a unique vocabulary for it. I guess it doesn't sound selfish or it's like, that seems like a little hat perspective. Sounds a little bit nicer to say than stopping so myopic and only looking at your own viewpoints. It just seems like a nicer, friendlier way to kind of enforce and bring people up to where they need to be. It is. It's not making people wrong. It's just naming something that's very natural. It's right to advocate for those you're loyal to in your unit. It is right to do that. And it is right to advocate for what is right for the business. This isn't right and wrong. These are two rights colliding. Okay, understood. And so that's pretty cool. So maybe could you then share a bit of a story then in terms of how you saw some folks, they got their arms around some you know, distinctions or universal principle language, and they saw a cool transformation come about from it. You know, I'm working a little bit out there in the Silicon Valley, and these are high-speed, well-capitalized businesses. 
And I'm reminded of one very recently where this big hat, little hat thing was really getting in the way. The company set out with one idea of what it was going to be and do. But while they were being and doing it, the world changed. New developments happened that they didn't see specifically. The technology they were building became a commodity right while they were building it. And so they had to then embrace the fact that, you know, the thing that they identified with, the thing they were building was now available for free everywhere. There was still something to do with that commodity, something special they could do. But the engineering team was hanging on to, but we can do it better. We can do it better. And the hardware engineering team. Mm -hmm. But the software engineering team and the rest of the company was saying, that incremental improvement is not going to make that much of a difference in the market. You know, it was kind of going on and on and on. And we got called in and we saw that big hat, little hat dilemma. We sat down with the engineers and we said, look, you have to understand something. Engineering is what you do. It's not who you are. We can let go of this aspect of the company. It doesn't mean you have to be taken out of this company. The small hat perspective you're having just doesn't have any longevity in this company based on what happened in the market. And I remember sitting there and like, you know, the team going, but this is our identity. We are hardware. It's our fingerprint. It's like, you know, the world showed up, the world happened. And the little hat arguing for it right now is burning time with the group and it's not going to work out. So, you know, now when you advocate for it, you know, instead of a yellow card, it's going to be a red card. Judo the whole thing. Just choose to go where we're going with this company. You know, and it took a little while. And these people were wonderful people, wonderful people. And they let go of that. And thank heavens we did because the price on that technology and the function, you know, the price came crashing down. The functionality went flying up, all available basically in the open market for free. I mean, it was really free. So I think if they didn't do that and we didn't move as fast as we did away from that particular aspect of the business, I think it would have been very detrimental to that company. And right now, that company is thriving. It really judoed that change in the marketplace. It said, look, it happened. Now what? Let's persist variously. And I think they're doing really well with it. And we learned a lot about that. And that big hat, little hat is really instantiated in their vocabulary now. Because that world they're working in is changing at lightning speed. And if you get too attached to anything, the conversations are really going to slow that business down. I'm real proud of how that worked out for them. Well, that's cool. Thank you for sharing. Yes, I got you. And that's interesting how there was sort of a personal hang up there in terms of identity or worth or value is like this thing that I'm working on and what could be. But then you shift gears a bit. So understood. Thank you. Now, I'd love you kind of broke out in your book, The Primes, a few different categories of universal patterns. And so I'd love it if you could maybe share a universal pattern or two, maybe one that's among the most powerful or overlooked, you know, inside each of these categories. So one of them was for leading during uncertain times, what's a universal principle that we should be aware of? (laughs) You know, I wrote that. And when I was looking at the history, people always think it's uncertain times. Mm. I draw a lot from the philosophers. I want to make sure that everything that we talk about has been talked about a long time ago. So we have to source all of this stuff in ancient scriptures and ancient writings. 
because we don't believe in new things. We don't want to drop another business book that's the flavor of the day. So when I was doing the research, I was learning that everybody thought it was uncertain times. I mean, can you imagine as the Roman Empire went around the Mediterranean, what it must have been like for those countries? Yeah. And that's where I draw a lot of this from. So uncertain times is a constant. But I think, you know, as simple as leading is, the prime leading, there's so many books on leadership and on leading. But when we boiled it down, not the noun leadership or leading, the verb leading is what I want to really focus on. And this sets people so free. There's four responsibilities when you're leading. And anybody can lead. Set direction, align the resources, inspire the action, and be responsible for the results. Okay. It boils down to that. If you look at all throughout history, the act of leading is to set the direction. Now that shows up as vision, strategy, intent. There's books on that, but set direction, align the resources. That means allocate people and money to activities that allow the direction to be realized. Inspire the action is when you enroll people and you get them to give up on what they were thinking and doing to be committed to a new way, a new place, and to do new things. Inspire that action. And finally, hold yourself responsible for the results. I can't tell you how much clarity that simple prime brings as we go to develop an intention for a company in an uncertain market. Yes. Well, it is nice and comprehensive there as I'm thinking about, yes, when you're leading, those are the things that you're doing. I'd love to maybe zero in on the inspire the action piece for just a moment. So I'm thinking that one way you can inspire new action is like, well, this is your job and these are your incentives and this is how you're paid for tackling that thing. What are some other sort of key ways that you've observed leaders throughout the centuries enact to be sort of extra inspirational or get that inspired action flowing sort of beyond just, you know, carrot sticks money? Right. And it turns out that the fourth category that we're going to talk about is much more powerful. It's this idea of enrolling. Enrolling. That sounds like a familiar term. Tell us more. You know, the question we have to confront people who are leading is, does your vision elevate people in degree and excellence and respect? And does it inspire them to act boldly, to act very boldly, to dare noble and mighty things? Enrollment is fascinating. And it usually is a function. I hope this isn't too jargony, but it's usually a function of context. So when a leader comes in front of a group of people, and at the end of that presentation, and at the end of that time that that leader is with these people, the people are just excited, and they're willing to work unreasonably to achieve this idea. But it's usually not about their company. When we see leaders truly enroll people, they usually start with the biggest context. Let me give you an example. Say a leader is in a tech company. Say they're in a drone company. I'm drawing from a real example here. Mm -hmm. And they stand in front and talk about the future of drones and the future of the technology. It's really a yawn, quite frankly. Or even if they talk about the future of their company. But when they come out into the group and they say, you know, it's wrong that blind people don't have the freedom to go wherever they want and to get whatever they want. 
it's wrong that people have to climb up on roofs to inspect hail damage and that insurance companies hold tens of thousands of people in jobs that make them dangle on the tops of buildings. It's not right that people have to go down into acid-filled tunnels to inspect things. We see a world, there's the key, there's the key enrollment. We see a world where machines in the water and in the air are taking care of, there are eyes, and it's, they're taking care of very hazardous observation, the tops of cell phone towers. And that's allowing people to live in a less risky kind of orientation with their work. And this leader just went on and talked about this world they were seeing. And when we all really got excited about it, I mean, really excited about it, we're like, that's the kind of thing that we should, he said, and we're going to build the drones that make that possible. All right. It was the context that excited us. That's cool. Thank you. That is a great example. And it's funny, it reminds me of the TV series you talked about, Silicon Valley. If you've seen the show Silicon Valley, it cracks me up. They always talk about, we're changing the world. And so they like left it as like sort of a punchline, like, what, how, what do you mean? But I love what you've done there is you really filled in some of the blanks and the gaps. So it's clear how, yeah, we are changing the world for these kinds of people in these kinds of jobs. And this is what's possible when we kind of go to work and make that happen. So understood. That's really cool. Thank you. And you're right. It's for these kind of people in these kind of jobs. But it turns out that there's tens of thousands of people, I know it sounds, that are climbing up on roofs to inspect hail damage. And drones do that brilliantly. Perfect. Okay, cool. Thank you. Well, could you now maybe give us a universal pattern for forming powerful alliances? Well, you know, we're in a world right now. I don't know. I looked at your audience and I'm really glad to be uh, speaking into this group. I, I think you'll agree. It's really difficult to take on noble and mighty things by yourself these days. Oh, sure. And it's even difficult to take on noble and mighty things with just the people in your company. We're almost forced to work between our companies to people. We have to join up people who aren't normally together. We have to put these groups together. I can't tell you a day where I'm just working with the same group of people. I'm always forming these alliances. And so it turns out that forming alliances is just a real important capacity for a thriving business today. And when you try to form these alliances, it can be very difficult unless you get people into a shared perspective. Okay. Now, for an alliance to have power, they have to have three things, a shared perspective, a shared intent, and an action plan that allows them to coordinate their actions. Three things. We're talking now about perspective. And, you know, when we found that old piece of silk, it's on the internet, people can look it up, of the blind man and the elephant. And, you know, the one guy's holding on to the leg and he's saying, hey, it's a tree. And the other guy's holding on to the trunk and he's saying, hey, it's some kind of pipe. And somebody's got the ear and they're saying, it's some kind of warm leaf. And somebody's got the tail and that person's saying, no, it's a rope. And there's one person you know, who can see standing way back, seeing that it's an elephant. But understanding that each of these people are perceiving this based on their point of view, what they can see. If you try to get those people to make, you know, an agreement around an intention, it's going to be all over the map. So the first thing that we have to do when we form an alliance is we have to get people into a shared perspective. And a very simple way to think about that is, you know, if you're standing right on a street level and you see a lot of traffic and you say, hey, let's fix this traffic, 
Your plan will be different than if you're standing on a building looking down at that traffic and you can see further up and down the street. That plan would be different if you were up in an airplane and that plan will be different if you took a satellite view. When you form an alliance, people are existing at all different levels of perspective. And so one of the key things in forming powerful alliances is to build a model, to model the problem, model the opportunity, to draw a picture of it. Because it causes these strangers, these people that are coming together to form an alliance, it causes them to snap into a common level of perspective. Once they have a common level of perspective, it's not that hard for them to establish an intent about what they want to do together. But I'll tell you something. You bring a group together and you don't get them aligned on perspective and you're going to have a lot of fragmentation around their intent. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I hear you. Absolutely. It's like you said, they're all over the place. So it's hard to intend the same thing because they think that their intention from their vantage point is, by golly, the thing that just needs to happen because they see it every day. Yeah, it's something that we weren't doing for a long time. We weren't going through the process of building these shared models. And, you know, since we've been doing this, it really snaps the alliance together much faster. Cool. Okay, so then could you also share with us a universal pattern associated with getting outstanding group performance? Well, I'll tell you something. Outstanding group performance, there's simply no way to get around integrity. All right. It's the cornerstone. You know... We all value trust. We know it's important to trust people. When you're going to be working in the context of a group, it's important to trust those people around you. But it's a fool's errand to focus on that. The base of the whole thing is integrity, and integrity is narrowly defined, and I know you'll agree with this. What a word. Socrates alone talked about this word. Aristotle, obviously, the same. Integrity meaning each part does exactly what it's designed to do so the whole can produce the intended outcome. The integrity of a car, each part of a watch, the integrity of a plane, all those parts working together so that the machine flies. Well, it turns out that groups basically work the same way. And in this context, integrity means what I say I'm going to do, I do 100% of the time. It's not moral. This is not moral. It's just integrity. A gun can have integrity. The parts can do what they're individually designed to do so the whole can accomplish what it's designed to do, and it can be used for evil or good. Integrity is agnostic. It simply means I say what I'm going to do, and I do it 100% of the time, no big, no small. When I give my word, my words become what you observe in the world that I do. So we think about integrity really as workability. Now, when you are perceived by the rest of the group as a person of integrity, you become what is called trustworthy. And people who are trustworthy become trusted. And it's a funny thing. Once we trust each other, we're going to start sharing our vulnerabilities, our ideas, things that might make us look bad. We're going to start having intimacy. And that's going to be the source of telling each other the truth. And that's going to set in place enormous performance. But the base of the thing is integrity. You're saying that it naturally follows 
that if you are, you know, doing what you say you're going to do, your words become actions, your commitments, you follow through upon them 100% of the time, that others around you then trust you and then they will naturally be willing to be vulnerable with you and sharing and disclosive and opening up. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, so I think that I see certainly some connections, correlations. I guess I'm wondering, though, I'm imagining, you know, someone who is almost like, you know, a robot. You know, they say something, they commit something, then they do that something. And then they say, by golly, we can just count on that guy. He's awesome. But that almost seems a little bit different than a person that you would want to open up to. How do you think about that? Is there a contrast? Are these different distinctions or are these along the same lines? Well, think about it this way. Would you open up to someone that you don't trust? No. Would you tell them a secret? Would you tell them a vulnerability? If you can't be certain what they're going to do with it, if in the past you've observed them not be their word, where they basically say they're going to do one thing and you observe them doing another, then you go to them and you have something really, really important that needs to be shared, but it, it has to be you know, in confidence. It has to be something that, you know, there's a pact being made. But this person is observed as not being their word. They can't be trusted. So I don't think integrity automatically causes intimacy, right. but it is a fundamental ingredient of intimacy. It causes safety. Integrity really causes safety. When you're around people who really honor their word as their life, and they say, okay, listen, I'll get this report to you tomorrow, and you just know that that report is coming the next day, it doesn't necessarily make it that you're going to definitely buy from them. But I'll tell you something. You get a salesperson and they'd say, oh, I'll send you that thing tomorrow, and it doesn't come that next day, a lot of red flags go up. So I don't think integrity automatically causes trust, but I don't think trust can happen without it. Does that make sense? Okay, I hear you, yes. So understood, thank you. Now I want to hear in practice, integrity, doing what you say you're going to do 100% of the time. I'd say in practice, most people don't. What are some of your perspectives on practical ways to upgrade your game so that you can be that kind of rock? Yeah, what a question. I mean, it's the central thing in a high-performance group that they value integrity, that they hold integrity as a value. So we have to go in a little bit deeper here. And let's give some real specifics. The first thing that's going to happen when a group takes on integrity as a value is they have to take on the word no. All right. When we crest to the individuals in the group, they have to be able to say no. Because what's happening is you get during the day and you I'm going to live in integrity and I'm going to be on time for my meetings and I'm going to get this report done for Mary by one o'clock. And it's all set up and it's going to happen. And those commitments exist. And here comes a man of integrity going through his day. And all of a sudden, requests start to come into him. And if he says yes to those requests, they will compromise the already yeses that he made, right. the integrity he's living in. So high-performance groups value the word no as much as the word yes. And high-performance groups will be saying no more than they'll be saying yes substantially. Now, the trick here is you have to distinguish three parts of speech when you're doing the social contracting. You have to distinguish a statement, I'm hungry, from a request, would you please get me food, from a command, get me food. The statement, I'm hungry, requires no response. <laughs> the request, will you get me food, can have yes 
or no. And no can have no consequences because it's an actual request. The command, get me food, the only answer is yes. What happens in low-performance groups, those three things are not distinguished. Somebody will come in and say, hey, the printer needs paper. And they'll come back 20 minutes later and say, how come you didn't change the printer paper? You didn't ask me to change the printer paper. (laughs) You didn't ask me to change the printer paper. So let's recap here. Get social contracting right. Understand a statement from a request from a command. And remember, the request, the most popular social contracting tool, yes or no, is an available response. In a high-performance group, the word no is valued as much as the word yes. Why? Because the people saying no, their motive for saying no is to protect their integrity because they've already given yeses and saying yes to the next request would put that in jeopardy. Now, this is a fundamental. When we work with high-performance teams, whether they're product teams or marketing teams or we're going to do a merger or an acquisition, this is a walkaway for us. If we can't establish the value of integrity, really crisp social contracting, and being totally okay with the word no, we just don't get to high performance. Okay, I hear you. It's open and shut for you. Understood. And so could you maybe, on the flip side, give us a universal pattern associated with group failure? Well, mishandling big hat, little hat is going to really screw up a group. I think that the one that I really want to hone in on, though, is giving too much attention to laggards. Laggards are people, it's about 13% of the system. Laggards are people who make a living out of destroying possibility. You know, they ask a lot of questions. A lot of their questions are legitimate. The difference between a laggard and an early adopter is both of these people when they're presented with an opportunity, a possibility, something new happening, they'll both ask questions. The early adopter will ask questions and the laggard will ask questions. The difference is this. When the early adopter gets their questions answered satisfactorily, they lock and load. They become committed to the possibility and they carry a lot of the other people in the company with them. Once they lock and load, people go, yep, it's got to be a good idea. You know, Mary thinks it is. She's an early adopter. Mm-hmm. The laggards, once they get answers to their questions, they simply ask more questions or they bring up Gnostic data. And what happens is the group starts to feed this. They start saying, well, okay, well, we got to get Jerry on the bus. We got to get Mary on the bus. And they start giving them attention. And that's exactly what the laggard is looking for. So if you really want to careen a group off of a cliff, really like have very low performance, fail to distinguish your laggards. And if you do distinguish them, fail to ignore them sufficiently because they will take so much group time. It's all noise. There's very little signal in laggards. And they're easy to spot. Once you get used to it, Peter, you can spot them very quickly. And you estimate one in eight-ish fall into that category. I think roughly that, yeah. Jeffrey Moore wrote Crossing the Chasm, and he looked at some research. There's quite a bit of research in this area. If you have 10 people in the room, one of them is probably going to be uh, having you know, deep laggard behavior. They're very articulate. They're very interesting. They're not dim bulbs, but they really have this orientation in life to draw attention to themselves by causing enormous ambiguity. And really, they just deflate possibility for a living. That's how they draw attention to themselves. All right. Well, thank you. So, well, this is some fun sort of high level conceptual thinking that has brought applicability in in many spheres. So I'd love to get a quick take from you before we hear about some of your favorite things. You know, Is there 
kind of one or two sort of immediate start doing this or stop doing that kinds of practical or tactical prescriptions you'd put forward to listeners here now today. If I want to be more awesome at my job and I'm thinking about all these universal patterns, what's something I should start or stop doing right away? Okay. I I have to come back to it. If you're not living in integrity with those around you, get there and start immediately. Be on time for things. Have things done when you said you're going to do that. It's not as easy as it sounds. It's really difficult in the world we live in to be a person of your word. So I can't emphasize that enough. It's free of charge. It's a wonderful experience. And all kinds of great things happen when you occur to the world as a person who honors their word as their life. It's just, you know, for me, it was one of the fundamental transformations in my life personally. And as a leader of a company, You know, I'm that person that's sitting in that meeting five minutes before it starts. And because I'm leading a company and because that's my orientation in life, our meetings start on time. And it didn't used to be that way. So I just encourage your audience to, you know, simply honor your word as your life and what you say, do in all matters. And if you don't clean it up. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I think is fascinating for your listeners that are leading businesses or part of leadership teams in business is get two markers, get a yellow and a blue highlighter and start highlighting your calendar in this very important distinction. Use one of the markers, say the blue marker, to highlight when you're working on your business and use the yellow marker to highlight the hours of the day where you're working in your business. The in on and being accountable for how much time you work on your business, that's bringing new functions to your business, new markets to your business. When you work on your business, you're literally changing your business. When you work in your business, you're really operating your business. And in today's market, the business itself is demanding a certain percentage of your time on and a certain percentage in. I'll tell you, when that drone company, when we hit that unexpected market development, we went all on the business. We had a serious conversation over a serious length of time. What are we going to do? And now that we have the company you know, flattened out more, it's in an operational mode. We're spending most of our time in the business actually doing what we said we were going to do. So the in-on distinction and being accountable, it's not right and wrong. At any point in time, especially from the leadership team, your business is crying out for a certain amount of on activity and a certain amount of inactivity. Learn to see the difference and ask yourself, am I appropriately working these ratios? That's great. Thank you. All right. Well, so now if you could share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring. A favorite quote, to know and not to act is not to know. Mm, Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? Right now what I'm studying is the word contentment. And I'm fascinated by the appall's ability to be content when held in the Roman prison. Some of the people that were locked up in the Jewish concentration camps have written about contentment inside those circumstances. And I'm really fascinated right now about being content, independent of anything that's going on around you. And I've been traveling in the developing world where people have so few possessions And I'm captivated by their contentment. So that's just something I want to take a really strong look at for myself, for the leaders that I'm working with, is this concept that you can be powerful while content. Cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Well, 
I'm kind of one-dimensional in that area. I just came back from a great trip to Israel. And, you know, when you look at the Isaiah 56 on, you know, something that's 400 BC, I'm still completely amazed by the truths that are inside the Bible. I don't think I'll ever be finished with that being my favorite book. Awesome. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool or product or something you use often that's really handy? Well, this Christmas... We're having a lot of fun with this Amazon Dot and just really beginning to make our house respond to verbal cues. I had enough trouble getting to the touchscreen, and now I'm in this house here. I have a lot of technical young people around me, and they've got lights coming on when I say, and I guess I can order things now uh, just by talking. And so the use of the voice to command computers to do practical things, I think it's going to be a very, very big next development. I can literally look at this thing and I can call its name and ask it to you know, bring me a product from Amazon. And I didn't think that was going to be a big deal until I found out that just that lack of going to it, lack of touching it, just talking to it, I'm using it a lot. And I don't know where that's going to end. So that's just something we're having fun with right now. Oh, fascinating. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that's been really helpful? I'm just really fascinated by what happens when you take a walk. Just the action of walking, you know, for 20 minutes, 40 minutes. It's more than physical. Just something seems to really happen to people. And I've been asking people about it, and it seems like it's universal. But the power of taking a walk and not listening to headsets, just taking a walk. And if you can walk in nature, I could spend a lot more time doing that. It's a unique thinking process. It makes your body feel good, gives you energy. So that's just something I'm focusing on. Oh, cool. Thank you. And what would you say, is there anything in your books or your teaching that really seems to resonate with folks such that they retweet it, they nod their heads, they furiously scribble notes? Is there a Chris McGough original that really seems to be hitting the mark with people? Nothing I have is original, Peter. I wish it was. (laughs) Everything I have, I copied. I didn't invent anything. I'm an archaeologist. I find the truths that work over time. I dust them off. And I try to make them pure signal into the world. I don't have anything original. But I know that a lot of consultants and a lot of people have this thing of let's analyze what's happening. Let's analyze what's happening. I ask my clients, why don't we give up coming from something's wrong? Why don't we just give up something's wrong? Why don't we take on what is possible here? So in all matters, as we pursue the future of this company, we are constantly going to be asking, especially when we're surprised by the marketplace, what is now possible versus you know, what was wrong with our plan? What's wrong? We're in trouble. Yeah, maybe, but what's possible? So what it really boils down to me when you're leading in uncertain times is just make a habit out of being possibility. Oh, thank you. And what would you say is the best place for folks to contact you if they want to learn more or get in touch? Well, you can contact me through theclearing.com. The company is called The Clearing, and our website is theclearing.com. And that's the easiest way to get a hold of us. And you can also reach me at chris.mcgoff at theclearing.com. And I'd love to hear from your listeners. Oh, yes. Well, thank you. We appreciate that, that access. That's awesome. And is there a final challenge or call to action you'd issue forth to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Here, starting immediately upon leaving this podcast, listen for when you're giving your word. That's the first step. Listen to yourself when you're giving your word. Mm, Excellent. Thank you.
Well, Chris has been a real treat. Thank you. And I wish you and the clearing and everyone that you're working with tons of luck. This has been a, a treat. Peter, I want to thank you for the time. I very much enjoyed it. And I hope we get to uh, do more of this. Could you imagine a world in which you and your team did exactly what you said you were going to do 100% of the time? That's liberating. Maybe some of you are in those teams right now. That's so cool. Maybe we should interview you on the show. Shoot me a note, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. That's great. And again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, or the links to stuff that we talked about here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep103. I encourage you, if you haven't already, punch the subscribe button so you will be sure to hear from folks like our next guest, R. Michael Anderson. He's got some practical perspective on taking a hard look at some of the beliefs we have deep down and challenging them and making them work for us in good, uplifting, powerful ways instead of limiting kinds of ways. So hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 